this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. Or maybe I should say, how is going to shake out for the rest of us since we are in that little bit of a lull before the new session begins in January. Hey, Emily Kornheiser, regular contributor and representative for the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. Good to see you. I would definitely not characterize this particular period in my life as a lull. (laughs) (laughs) As I was saying those words, I could see your eyes going like this and I'm like, (laughs) she doesn't agree. I also want to welcome back to the show Representative uh, Mike McCarthy, who's zooming in from St. Albans, and he is a member of, or has been serving on uh, what we like to shorthand call GovOps, which is the House Committee on Government Operations, and he's just kind of going to chat with us about what he thinks the new session will be like. So thanks for joining us, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Olga, and uh, for inviting me back, Emily. It's always fun to talk with y'all. So let's dive in right then and there. You know, you're getting ready for the new session. I think we're going to probably have a deluge of reports being released between now and January. Um, What's on your plate right now? Yeah, so uh, the election is over and it really is like straight into getting ready for the work of the session. And uh, as Emily said, it is not a lull right now for us who are returning, uh, thinking a lot about what are our priorities for the next session, talking to other members, trying to um, figure out what the pace is going to be. And also, we have a ton of new members. So uh, I also serve as the Assistant Majority Leader Whip right now. Uh, and that in that role, I've been touring the state. We actually stopped uh, in Brattleboro this weekend. Um, did another a, a number of other stops uh, to meet with small groups of legislators to, to talk about what did they hear from their constituents and what are their priorities for the upcoming session and, and uh, working with the speaker and the majority leader to plot a course forward and really distill all of the things that we heard into some high level priorities and, and figure out what the big overarching strategy is going to be for the session. We uh, were really successful on election night in the House Democratic Caucus with uh, 104 members. It's the biggest Democratic caucus that's ever been elected to the House. Um, And it's the biggest caucus since 1966, back when uh, the Republicans had 115 members. So it's going to be a very different kind of a dynamic in the State House. Yeah, it's, you know, the new, members, sorry, the new members are all going to training next week, and it's been really fun working with staff this week as they, like, get ready for those trainings. It's really fun to talk to new members who have, like, so many questions. And I'm like, go to your training and then get back to me with the questions afterwards. Um, just, like, lots of hustling and bustling and excitement as we start ramping up. And for for you, Mike, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you just mentioned 104 new members, uh, 104 Democratic uh, members in your caucus. How, what's your take on that? Some people are getting very excited, um, thinking that anything the Dems want to pass are now just like this, don't pass, go, just collect your 200 bucks. Um, how, what's your take on, on this quote unquote supermajority? 
Oh yeah. So I think, you know, the, the narrative is already coming out in, in articles that are being written and there's a ton of excitement about just being able to do whatever we want. And then, and I think that there's a lot of power. I want to be excited about the fact that if we go into committees and we do our good work as we always do, and we deliberate and we listen to perspectives from across Vermont and we hear from different folks and we decide, yeah, this policy is the right one to help working families in Vermont and to help Vermont move forward, we will very likely be able to get that policy passed in the House, even if the governor chooses to veto it. But I think before we get to that thinking of like, we're going to just ram legislation through and the and the governor's not going to be able to do anything, it's it's more an opportunity on the front end for the administration to say, huh, I better work with my legislative colleagues and try to get the bills to be the best that they can be. And I think in the last biennium, uh, we saw the administration kind of take a wait and see approach and surprise us with vetoes on some legislation. Um, They weren't very communicative. Um, And, you know, the governor did his usual thing of saying, you know, I was elected, you were elected, let's all work together uh, in an op-ed, but, you know, the speaker gave him a call and he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll make a meeting with you in like three weeks, maybe. (laughs) So I, I, you know, I'm cautiously pessimistic (laughs) about how the governor will react to some of our priorities. Um, but I think that some of the things that we have done in the past will definitely be back on the table for working committee. I think about, priorities that that I've had and I've run on every time um, that I think Emily shares like paid family and medical leave uh, insurance. I think, you know, we want to join the rest of the developed world and making sure that when people or their families are sick or need to take time off that they can pay their bills. That's a pretty basic fundamental thing in a modern economy that we just don't do in Vermont right now, but a lot of other states have had enormous success with. And so when I talk to my colleagues from other states and they're like, businesses love this, workers have the support they need. If we had had this in Vermont during COVID, if we had had paid family and medical leave insurance, it would have given so many families peace of mind and they'd been able to pay their bills during the most uncertain times um, of the uh, of the pandemic. We just have to take that back up. And, and I, I've heard the speaker talk about it a number of times. I know that's just one of the many things that just barely didn't make it in the past. And, um, you know, that was something that in the house, lost uh, a veto override by just one vote. Uh, and in the the one person I think we were, were counting on, um, the, the, the gentleman who ran in that district, uh, and the person who would have been the 100th vote, he ran on paid family medical leave insurance. So that's just an example of how the dynamic is different right now. And I think there are really powerful, exciting things we can do for working families and for climate. Um, this is going to be a very, very exciting session, but it's not like on day one, every single bill that we didn't get through in the past is suddenly going to materialize. We have a no, bunch I of think the, mm-hmm. I think the way that it'll change process is like, and we talked to John Walters about this a little bit. Was that last week? Just last uh, week? No, two weeks ago. I think. Two weeks ago. Um, is, you know, we have this like very big tent, right? And so we're going to have like incredibly diverse caucus conversations in order to sort of like bring people along. We would, we're going to have to. And 
the governor having and the administration having like a little extra incentive to come to the table to help shape those laws so that they can be well administered, I think will make such a difference in good policymaking. It's so, this is what we talked to John about, it's so hard to develop really good legislation if the folks who are administering the law aren't providing meaningful input on those laws, right? And so I want to make sure that any law we pass is going to be administered just as well as it was envisioned mm. in the language of law policy. And so I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to have the administration at the table to shape some of this with us. Mm-hmm. That said, I'm also really psyched to get our priorities through. The other thing I feel hopeful about, Mike, is it's not, you know, the majority is great. I'm excited about that. But one thing we talk about so much on this show is like, stories that shape our legislation, the stories that shape our political progress. And having so many new members, I feel like it's such an incredible opportunity to reshape some of those narratives that we've been stuck in for a long time. And I don't know if that's something that you've thought about at all. Yeah, I mean, I look at some of the the new members that are coming in, um, how many women that there are. We have members from the Northeast Kingdom that are, there's such a different, a change in the delegation that's coming from some of the counties like Orleans, for instance. Um, And I think that the geographic perspectives, the number of young people and younger professionals, the number of members who have young families um, and what that'll bring to conversations like, how do we make childcare more affordable and more accessible um, will be very, very important this time around. So it's a, I made a joke at one of our small regional meetings about this uh, class of new legislators coming in being all killer and no filler um, <laughs> for you know any of you 90s music fans. Um, and uh, it really is just an incredibly uh, intelligent, thoughtful, uh, but also ideologically diverse group. I mean, the 104 Democrats that were elected and the five progressive allies that we have and the couple of independents who will probably work with us on a number of issues, like those people on any given issue are not a monolith. They're, you know, they're not going to all just say, yeah, that policy is great because, you know, the speaker or the majority leader or me said it was. Um, and so the kind of collaboration and dialogue and the committee work that we do, you know, we have to kind of do our process and do the good work that we always do. So um, I'm, I'm really confident that we will be able to set a table in each of the committees and in the house to have good conversations and make good policy. There's also some exciting new people in the Senate. Um, you know, Representative Rebecca White's one of my favorite, favorite colleagues, and I've worked with her professionally outside of the legislature, and she's in the Senate now, or coming into the Senate as a senator-elect, and so they're just great people like her. Uh, you all have Nader coming back as a senator. Um, we have so, two really great new senators we that do. were sent and we really it, do. you know, a lot of loss with the senators that we're losing, and a lot of really new, awesome opportunity with the new senators that we're getting. So here. a question for, for both of you. You know, this last, this last biennium was so shaped by COVID and we're not completely out of the COVID wood yet, but I don't think, I don't know that so far that this biennium is going to be exactly as, as drenched in COVID as, as the one we just left. And it makes me wonder, you know, you've had some colleagues who they came in in COVID and that's how they knew the state house was under COVID. Um, any thought about how, you know, now that people are 
gathering, I'm assuming, more in person. Is there going to be retraining, too, of the folks who who only knew the, we'll call them the COVID class? Um, That's what we call them, actually. Okay. <laughs> Lucky them. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, there's a couple of things that... Um, the the new members that are coming in that were just elected for the first time are going to get the benefit of, you know, coming in in person and meeting everybody in person. Mm-hmm. Folks who are coming back for their session that started with a whole year on Zoom and had to be sworn in from their homes on their laptops like, like this uh, and legislated like this for a whole year before they got to see anybody in person, um, they... they they had to learn a different way of legislating sort of twice, like each year they had to adapt. But what I will say is that folks who, um, there are a couple of people that are coming back who were legislators in the past. I think of Robin Chestnut Tangerman or Carl Demereau. And even though they missed that sort of COVID biennium, they are coming back into a much changed state house. So the fact that every single committee meeting and every single house proceeding and Senate floor proceeding is live streamed is a big difference. That's something that we all need to like be aware of that. We're not just having a little whispered you know, conversation, like absolutely everything is not only being recorded, but it's also being broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big change. Um, and it's so much easier for folks to meaningfully participate remotely in committee testimony. Like you're actually able to zoom in and have you know your face projected on the screen and to communicate with the committee members and tell your story as a Vermonter about whatever you think about whatever the policy that's being discussed in that committee. So there a lot of those things are different and the state house is different in terms of we moved rooms around. And so I think like everybody is going to need to take a, a beat in the beginning and learn the new members, learn the new way that the state house is um, and just be respectful of the fact that this is a collaborative, inclusive process. And part of what I'm excited about with my role, if I return to house government operations is how are we setting the table for a more inclusive process? How are we making sure that the right people are coming in and, and we're still going to have a kind of antiquated, overly formal process because that's how we <laughs> make laws in this little republic that we that we have. Um, but I think there are ways that we can do a better job with some of the the, the overwhelming number of new chairs that we're going to have this year um, to sort of set a new tone of how we make sure that Vermonters feel more welcome coming into committee and speaking and that they'll be respected. Um, you know, we're there to represent them you know, we're not there to sort of wear our suits and lord it over them. So uh, that's a, a big thing that I think uh, all this changeover with leadership and chairs is going to help us with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of new opportunities to set culture. So, the you know, the newer returning members, I don't think ever really um, solidified into sort of what cultural context they were in because they'd operated in two such different ones. Um, all the brand new members and then the returning like you know the longer time returning members are going to have so many new people around that they're going to have to adapt to that like Mike said and so such great opportunities for resetting culture um, and transforming culture and then you know 
all of the new members are coming in with like lessons learned from the pandemic in a way that isn't sort of scarred by actually living through making those decisions. Mm. Um, and so they, I think, just have a much greater sense of possibility. Like they've seen what government, you know, I mean, I'm like a broken record on the happy hour about this at this point, but like they've seen what government can do mm-hmm. when like we have the resources to do it. And so I think that sense of scale is gonna be really radically different from previous um, cohorts. I think the sense of scale around spending has been really reset, um, both with the last cohort and this new new incoming cohort. And so while we're not like talking about COVID in the same way anymore, the lessons learned are still really real in there. The other thing, which is halfway between a tiny detail and like one of the most important pieces of Vermont democracy is um, the ability to serve in the legislature and our, you know, citizens legislature and like all of the sort of farce about that being a representative body given how hard it is to serve that we've talked about on the show so many times. Um, The ways that we adapted to the pandemic and to COVID Um, in terms of people being able to participate remotely more often with sort of a greater awareness of the caretaking duties that even legislators have for their families, I think is going to create, I don't want to say a more family-friendly workplace because that seems like a little too hopeful, um, but at least like some momentum towards moving towards a legislature that is a more possible place for the average person to serve. Mm-hmm. One of the privileges I've had being on leadership is serving on the House Rules Committee, and we took a body-wide survey of all of the folks that are serving in the legislature and have been working with the National Council of State Legislatures, which helps state legislatures across the country think through how they do their work, um, to, to think about what benefits, pay, schedule makes sense for us. Like, can we take all of the disruption that's happened in the last couple of years and think about what do legislators really need and what do Vermonters really need from their legislators and how do we support them better? And thinking about things like, should legislators have access to some healthcare? (laughs) You know, like that's a pretty big thing that's missing from us if we're, you know, employees of the state. we don't have access to, to any healthcare benefits. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a job that keeps my healthcare benefits, even though I'm working four days a week for somebody else, the people of Vermont, um, for out of the year, uh, a lot of legislators don't have that. And it's, and it's a barrier for folks being able to serve. So, um, that's just one example of the many things that we're talking about right now, but I think the conversation, um, is at the surface and we're able to be, um, just, more authentically engaged in that conversation and, and not have the fear that constituents are going to be like, you guys are just doing this for yourselves. And the reality of it is, is, you know, you do this job and it's disruptive to your professional life. And if you want people with families and people who are working to have the ability to serve in this role and it truly be a citizen legislature, there are some fundamental things missing. Um, mm-hmm. from. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that we have such a large incoming class is because we had a lot of resignations for folks who couldn't make it work anymore um, financially or, you know, in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like Mike said, if this is actually going to be representative democracy, then we really need to make it easier for folks to serve. Mm 
Yeah. Um, thank you. I, I want to double back to, I think it was you, Emily, was talking about setting a new culture or, mm-hmm. or revising the culture of the, of the state house. And while I think that's wonderful, that is a really big lift. Um, and it can be kind of an amorphous lift. So is that something that the caucus is working on actively? What What's the plan? Um, I think you... we've been working on that actively for a few years. I think okay. that's something that um, Mitzi Johnson actually really started when she was speaker and Jill's really carried forward as speaker. So, um, and Becca Ballin as pro tem in her office. So um, there's been a huge emphasis on preventing sexual harassment, which was like, um, the legislature often feels it's like it's like in terms of employment culture, like 30 years behind the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, ethic, you know, like ethic, sexual harassment, basic off like good office culture. That's like stuff that we've been sort of working on for the last few years. Um, having really solid relationships with legislative staff um, and being really clear about sort of what professional boundaries look like there and don't look like there. That's part of it. Um, and then there's sort of the softer stuff just like within, I think, with our colleagues, um, including sexual harassment, but also, you know, what does seniority mean? In an environment with a lot less seniority, or we're like, say, I have seniority or Mike has seniority, even though we've only been there for, you know, I will have only been there for four years and Mike, it would be six for you, right? Yeah. So this, this will be my fourth term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like if that, that's like a total flipping of like basic legislative culture that like we're senior. Um, and so we're so old, Emily. We're so old. (laughs) Um, and so that's really, really exciting. Like, you know, there's the, you know, incoming reign of generation X, which is like high on the list of thrilling things for me, Mm -hmm. but even more than that, it's, um, this idea that like newer members have good ideas, deserve to be listened to, can move important pieces of legislation, um, can move into leadership positions. It's just like a much more nimble body when we release ourselves from some of those like really intense restrictions on seniority. What else, Mike, what are some other, I mean, you talked about a different culture and committee in terms of like how we bring people in and how we talk Mm -hmm. to people, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, this idea of uh, there actually being um, a a booklet, (laughs) there's a document that says, this is how you create a welcoming committee, and this is how we treat witnesses was like a huge innovation, actually. I mean, it doesn't sound that complicated, but that's kind of a big deal, right? And, um, And I think that the incoming chairs will have an opportunity to sort of do a reset in a number of committees um, about, you know, the way that we maintain decorum and how we respect each other as colleagues around, you know, usually an 11 person committee table in um, the house. And then especially, I think, how, how we respect witnesses. Like, there are these horrible stories every year about like, a committee chair or a member of a committee that just goes after a witness and makes the witness cry. And then, you know, the, that committee member or chair needs to get called in the speaker's office. And it's like, that's not how we want to do business. <laughs> right. Uh, we want to create a really welcome, welcoming and respectful culture. And I remember the former speaker Shap Smith talking about, you know, we solve our problems here in the state house. We have our debates in Montpelier 
so that you know we don't have to fight it out in the streets. We have this enormous opportunity to actually make choices and govern, um, you know, in, but it, it's not going to be respected by people if we don't respect people. Uh, so I think- I love that. Yeah. Another piece um, that I'm looking forward to in terms of cultural reset, and we've been doing um, some of, is, you know, given the limited time we have and give, given the limited staff we have, the folks who are asked to come in and give testimony um, is a fairly limited circle often. And, you know, there's been all of these really cool recent studies by, like, in the journalism industry um, around, like, always going to the same sources and what that does, right, for articles and for the media, um, and, like, diversifying sources. And I've talked to folks at VPR about, like, they've gotten some, like, really good national funding to really work on that project. Um, but that's something that we need to do in the legislature as well. Mm. And, um having new folks at the table, having new committee assistants, like all of that really creates an opportunity to really ask like at every piece of legislation, like we don't just wanna hear from the people who show up and knock on the door, but like think about like who's impacted by the work we're doing and how can they have a voice in this process? Yeah, um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say that that's a really great point, Emily. Um, and will it be, um, will folks be tasked with looking for folks outside their networks? Because, I mean, a lot of that is, is new network building, too, and that takes time sometimes. Yeah, so I think part of it is actually started because of just the Zoom access. So um, previously, if I was on a committee, I think committee some committee chairs regularly say, like, does anyone have any witnesses that they want to hear from on this issue? Or let me know if you do. If I have to like ask folks in Wyndham County to drive all the way up to the state house to maybe sit in an uncomfortable chair for four hours to maybe say three words, I'm not gonna really volunteer like the vast majority of the folks in the community, right? Even if I know they'd be great witnesses. It's just too much to ask a person. On Zoom, I can be like, oh my God, I know this person, then they could probably do it during their three minute break at work. And so even just like the number, the, people being asked who can answer the question is expanded by Zoom. Um, and I think we need to get better at asking, chairs need to get better at asking lobbyists to be like explicitly searching their networks better rather than always turning to the same person. Um, committee assistants need to be sort of, you know, helped to do research on that. I think that it's, you know, I think there's a few different paths to make that work. We have just a couple minutes before we need to hear from underwriters on WBEW. Uh, but Mike, is there anything you wanted to add or leave listeners with before we go to break? Yeah, I just think that we have this enormous opportunity in this legislative session to take the two years of craziness that we just had <laughs> and not only do all this new stuff, but to also look back and say, wow, we authorized an historic amount of money to go out the door. A lot of it hasn't even been programmed yet. You know, it's sort of waiting there for the grants to be processed for child care centers, for instance, and, you know, these um, the tuition loan programs, uh, loan forgiveness. So there's all this money and all this great work that we did. 
that we actually need to kind of check in and take a look at and see, is it going out the door? Do we need to make tweaks to what qualifies for that money? Did we program it in the right way and allocate things to the right resources now that we've had a little bit more time? So um, the, the pandemic really isn't over in the sense that we have years to spend this federal money and we've put it into big buckets and we made decisions about that in the last biennium. But there's like, I don't know, about a quarter of a billion dollars going out the door for housing. Most of that hasn't been spent yet. So Vermonters are all telling us we need to do stuff about housing, but there's an enormous amount of money that we want to spend in in the right ways. And also any project that we want to put in place like has to get permitted and the materials need to be available. And we don't necessarily have the workforce to do all of the work. So it can take a while. Um, so those are all things I'm I'm interested in making sure we do too, is to look back and make sure the money that we allocated actually gets spent and is being spent well. Thank you. Everybody, uh, we will be right back on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, right after we hear from some of our underwriters. So don't touch that dial. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV and many of the PEG stations uh, around the state, and we thank BCTV for all their work getting us on air. You can also find us at our Facebook page as well as our Captivate page, and if you want to subscribe, anywhere you find your podcasts. I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, as well as Representative Mike McCarthy, who's zooming in from St. Albans. And before I run out of breath, Emily, what do we need to remind people of? (laughs) Views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, nor the platform, nor their employers. Very well. Very well done. Thank you, Emily. So, Mike, you have been serving on the House Committee for Government Operations, also known as GovOps, which is one of those committees I'd love if you would briefly remind people what GovOps tends to tackle because it's they don't tend to tackle like the really sexy things, but I always think they tackle the really important policy. So take it away, Mike. Uh, yeah, we, so we kind of had a spotlight on us for two reasons in the last biennium. So last biennium, we did get some big, big banner things. So we, two, two big things. One was um, the, uh, by the decennial uh, every 10 year redistricting process where we did the new legislative districts that um, were in effect for this last election and we're all uh, entering into our service for the first time. And the other thing was um, the big uh, pension bill, uh, S-286, which um, really put a couple hundred million dollars into teacher and um, public employee uh Pensions, so that's the state troopers and all of the VSEA folks, the state employees. So uh, that was a, a huge, huge lift 
over the last biennium. And now we kind of, I think, are going to have this opportunity um, since our my friend and my outgoing chair, Sarah Copeland Hansis, is now going to be our Secretary of State. She's the Madam Secretary-elect now, which is awesome. And um, so there's this opportunity now. Uh, there's going to be new leadership on that committee, I'm sure. And I think we're going to get back to a little bit of the the basics and maybe some of the very important but not sexy work. So some of those things are professional regulation. So in the Secretary of State's office, so uh, OPR, the Office of Professional Regulation, this touches so many Vermonters' lives. Mm -hmm. It's everything that's licensed from cosmetologists to doctors and nurses and the professional boards and what are the standards, um, compacts between different states about are we going to recognize the license in your state for a nurse that's coming into our state. Um, so all that professional regulation stuff is very interesting to me. I could geek out on that forever. Um, <laughs> there are changes happening all the time because our world is dynamic and there's all this wonderful stuff happening in many professions um, and new professions that maybe should be licensed that aren't licensed today. So those are real questions that um, come before GovOps. GovOps does a lot of stuff with municipalities. Um, you'll see that in the fact that whenever there's a charter change, so Brattleboro had some charter change work last session, and I'm sure we're going to see some of those things. going to come back. I hope you're excited about it. <laughs> I am. I was a big, uh, big supporter of your uh, efforts to engage your young voters in voting for municipal offices. So uh, that is work that we do is charter changes, municipal stuff, um, and very related and, and overlapping with that is um, the way that elections are carried out. And I think there are some real opportunities for us to learn from now having a couple of general elections with universal vote by mail. Um, what worked well and what didn't with that? Are there opportunities for us to improve, for instance, the ballot curing? Um, did we get that period right? Are town clerks totally overwhelmed or did they love it? So I'm really interested to collect that feedback about what went well and what didn't this past election and make updates. Um, I got to co-report S50, which was the big universal vote by mail bill, making the universal vote by mail permanent with um, Sarah Copeland hands as her chair. And uh, that was really exciting. And so I'm a total geek about how we continue to improve access to democracy for folks. So um, we also do criminal justice reform work. We touch on that. And so how to sort of have cross-jurisdictional work with House Judiciary and a couple of the other committees around um, how do we regulate uh, law enforcement. And I think one of the big questions we have given what's happening in, in my district and a couple of others with um, folks running for sheriff who uh, have some really serious professional, ethical, now criminal um, activity. Um, so our sheriff elect, who was the only candidate printed on the ballot, is under, um, so he's been charged with uh, a criminal act in that he, you know, there's this video that circulated that I think many of your listeners and viewers have seen where he kicked repeatedly a detained, you know, per, uh, person who was under the man who was under the influence clearly um, and in a really violent and terrible way. And it's hard to have confidence in him as a sheriff when he clearly, um, you know, has a problem with violence and use of force. So uh, that's the kind of thing that we need to think about is, are we, do we have the right law enforcement 
structures in the state. So we have a very antiquated, I think, sheriff's system across the state. It's this idea of electing a sheriff and that they run their office and that they have kind of absolute authority in their county in a lot of ways. Um, and it's very hard to check that authority um, in this modern era, the way that that's set up. So I think we need to take a look at the statutes around how the sheriffs are set up uh, as just one example of um, how we can think about structural reform to law enforcement. And I think increased professionalization of law enforcement. So I wanna, I wanna make sure folks hear me really clearly in that I think we need to invest in the right public safety. <laughs> and I think there's great examples from my community of how we've done that. Like my community just voted last March to add a second embedded mental health professional to work with our police department. Mm -hmm. And we are really struggling to find that person. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, there are some labor and workforce issues there that I think are keeping us from doing some of the public safety work we want, uh, but yeah, we'll continue. Some of that labor and workforce stuff, which I think goes across a lot of emergency services, is that we have a lot of over, overlapping jurisdictions. Um, and so we have some duplication of efforts, and then we have some places and spaces in our state that really are not served at all. Um, and so there's some interesting stuff to be said, sort of building on the sheriff's office, but I think that goes like sort of beyond that. Mm, interesting. Just uh to help listeners comprehend that when you talk about overlapping jurisdictions, Emily, so I love in, an example. Yeah. So in Brattleboro, we have a police department. That's a Brattleboro police department that um, has its own dispatch system. We have our own fire department. We have our own, um, we now have our own emergency medical services within the Brattleboro um, fire related to the Brattleboro fire department. And we are, covered by the state police. We are covered by the sheriff's office. Um, we cover fires for volunteer fire departments all around us that don't have a volunteer, that don't have a professional fire department. And so are deeply understaffed when a big fire comes. Um, and so those are just like some, and then there's, you know, out in Whitingham or Townsend you could wait 45 minutes for someone to come in like a really extreme emergency mm -hmm. and not even really quite, you know, know who the right person is to call. Do you call the sheriff? Do you call the state police? You know, no, Emily, you, call, you call your neighbors, <laughs> call your neighbors. Exactly. You call your neighbors. Um, <laughs> and so I think, you know, there's a lot to uncover there. Maybe that's sort of, you know, definitely too big for a single year and definitely conversations that have started before. But um, I think, when folks sort of talk about the emergency of dispatch or the inequity of emergency medical services, I think it's like, it's actually, they're all deeply connected and they're all building, they're all the result of this antiquated system that we've never sort of tried to restart from scratch. We've just patched stuff on top of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am sure that government operations is going to have to continue. Um, and really, so we, you know, we put together a, a working group um, and, asked them to come back and tell us how to fix dispatch and gave them some more clear guidelines or sort of guardrails, I guess, on that conversation <laughs> that, uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying to make some progress. But as Emily said, it's not like we're going to get in this, this biennium and just completely upend what we have. Like I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, making sure that we 
open up these conversations, look at the options and don't cause more harm with the solutions that we try to impose by running too fast at it. Um, but there are some things there and there are some communities in our state that really need a quick help with dispatch and uh, EMS services, police, fire uh, is an issue for some communities. So emergency services, including dispatch, are definitely going to be um, topics that we're going to try to make some progress on in the next couple of years, but we won't solve it all in one by any of them, I'm sure. You know what else that's in the GovOps committee, Olga? What's that? Cannabis. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to save that for last because I knew we'd need Oh, that. I'm sorry. It's Wyndham <laughs> County. If you'd like to move. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I heard uh, my uh, our chair of the cannabis control board. Um, Did you hear him on NPR this morning? Yeah. He, well, I didn't hear him this morning, but I heard him a few days ago begging people to please like be patient about their applications for licenses for <laughs> the cannabis control board and to not harass staff. I want to definitely echo that. I know that folks are frustrated. One of the things I was frustrated about that led to the problems is that, you know, we set a process in motion and then it took a long time for the governor to appoint the folks that were going to review those licenses. Um, so I think, you know, this, this goes back to Emily's original comment. Like one of the things we need in cannabis and across the board is just an administration that is uh, faithfully and competently executing the law. Mm -hmm. And um, there have been some really legitimate challenges, but I think in this case, things could have gone much, much smoother if there had just been an expeditious appointment of the qualified people who had um, applied to, to work on these licenses and get this process moving. Um, but I'm excited to see that we are moving forward and we've actually had fewer really big bumps in the road than some of the other states that have rolled out their tax and regulated market. Um, but we're just at the beginning. Folks really need to be patient. We're going to learn from some of the, the things that have gone well as uh, we've got this little retail tax and regulated cannabis market stood up. And um, I'm sure there's going to be room for improvement. And that is going to be part of what government operations does because uh, that's in our it's been in our, our wheelhouse in GovOps, uh, <laughs> the Cannabis Control Board and the, the whole framework around have, that. Have any and licenses gone out yet? Yeah, there's a there are open cannabis stores all over the state. Yeah, so there's, there's one, there's yeah, one in I West saw a sign for a, a store today, but I wasn't sure. Oh, there's one in West Brattleboro. There are mm -hmm. two, I think, in Burlington. There's one that's open in Middlebury. I think there's one in Bennington, surprisingly. Um yeah, no, they're, the licenses are absolutely going out. And the folks who had sort of like first in the queue on the day it opened, I think have all had their licenses granted. This is just folks who applied after the original line. Gotcha. Now. gotcha. And if listeners want to go into the Wayback Machine, we did a great interview with James Pepper, who mm -hmm. is the um, head of the Cannabis Control Board. And that was maybe six months ago or so. Yes. Yeah. But I think if you, you know, looked search cannabis in our list of episodes and pepper like. yeah cannabis and pepper it'll pop up yeah. <laughs> um, James pepper does sound like a made-up name i just want to say that i hope he's, he's a real listening. person <laughs> he is a real person we have seen him he's really really wonderful and thoughtful and dedicated to making sure that we learn from what other states have done and do this really well for vermonters um i just in all seriousness like the cannabis control board they're doing really good work. 
And I know that any rollout like this and a big change in an industry is going to be difficult. And I think what we have to do as legislators is help respond to what do we do right? What do we do wrong? You know, do we need to change some of the law to make certain things easier and, um, and maybe let go of some uh, of the products that we've approved or add products that are in the market? Um, one of the biggest problems that we have that I, that I always try to remind people of is we're trying to make the, the cannabis products that people want to buy available in our regulated marketplace so that they're safe for consumers and that we're getting them into the legal marketplace and that we're starving the illicit marketplace of that business. And um, so there's this balancing act of, you know, there are some things that some legislators, some of our colleagues really had um, issue with um, that have higher concentrations of THC, for instance. Um, and it's that trying to, you know, thread the needle of, do we want to get it off the black market or are we trying not to offer some of those more potent or, you know, products that people have a, a little bit more concern about. So uh, there's a lot of choice, uh, to, yeah. a lot of choices to make in cannabis policy. And what about uh, before the show, we had talked about regional government as well. And we, we touched on a little bit with, with emergency services and um, elections, but that's one thing I find really interesting in Vermont is we're, we're always kind of trying to find that economy of scale. And I think regional is one of those layers. Um, but I'm wondering for GovOps, what, what does regional government or regional planning, however you want to call it, look like from your perspective? And I would say, Olga, we're always failing to find that economy of scale. <laughs> I mean, we're always looking for it, but we're always like not finding it. No. <laughs> and I want to name the tension. So in Vermont, so many of our communities and so many of our constituents really value this idea of local control, right? Yeah. That my community, my town decides which school we have and exactly which road gets paved this year. And, you know, down to like, how many softballs are we going to order for the softball team? Like there's this, this real value of local control. I think it's, a good value in many ways, but it also at times can prevent us from regionalizing services and collaborating and building things that serve more people better at lower cost per unit. <laughs> and so there's a real tension there that we just have to name and see and be really earnest about and have conversations about and make clear choices. And so one of the things that we have that I think is hugely valuable is that if you're in a very small community, like my community is relatively large for my city of St. Albans, right? Brattleboro is relatively large. We have staff mm -hmm. that can do things like write grants. Mm -hmm. So when the state or the federal government says, hey, we're gonna help municipalities with these things and you can apply for this grant. So many of our really small communities, they would never even see that that grant was available or think to write it or have somebody who could write it. And so we've invested a little bit in Vermont in having regional planning offices that can offer support for municipal grant writing. And in our agency of transportation, we have an office that helps smaller communities write grants in order to get money for roads and bridges and bike pet projects and things like that. So we've done a little bit of that. One of the things I've heard from a lot of legislators as I've talked to folks as we've done this little roadshow with the leadership team over the last few days is that there's a capacity issue 
in local and state government. Then it's not just financial resources anymore. It's that there are not enough qualified people either to volunteer or to do the work. And I think that's going to really push us to collaborate in a way that we've been waiting for. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what we expect of a lot of our volunteers is a lot too. Yeah. My government has become more complicated, I think. Mike, you're on your select board and you're a legislator. City Council, yes. I, yeah. That is, that's a wild journey you're on. Yeah. Um, thank you for service, services, multiple ways of serving. But that's a lot of communities, right? It's like, it's that that old adage of like, if you want something done, ask the busiest person. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. Yes. <laughs> that's happened to me a lot. I'm starting to try to like, you know, find other people to invite to do things. I'm no longer chairing the downtown board. You know, I'm not doing everything. Um, but I think in, in many of our Vermont communities, that's the norm, right? Is that, you know, there's a handful of people doing the lion's share of governing. Um, and, you know, I think we need to open that up. Even just a few years ago in St. Albans, a lot of the city council members were serving on our design review board and our planning commission and that kind of stuff. And we just today had eight people apply for four seats on our downtown board. We had six people apply for three seats that are opening up on our planning commission. That's exciting. It tells me that there's this interest in being more involved in local government and being at the table. Um, and I think that's a sign that there's a healthy, <laughs> uh, healthy desire to participate in local democracy. And one of the things I love about GovOps is that we help to shape at the state level how local government works and what the laws are that set the the guardrails and the rules for how local governments work. So that stuff is really fun because I love our little towns and our big towns in cities. I have a weird hypothesis that just popped into my head that I want to float past you all just so that every episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour has a weird hypothesis. Okay. Along with a cocktail. Hypothesis and cocktails here. You ready? Okay. So we don't really have any county government. We have, we like all feel deeply, deeply focused and loving about our small towns, right? And that like our town is the epicenter stuff. And a lot of that's town meeting and town meeting culture, absolutely. And that's what we've always sort of attributed it to. But I wonder if part of it is we've done such a good job with zoning that there is actually a distinction geographically between one town and another. When I've lived in other places hmm. that have strong county government, it's often like one town really bleeds into the next and you don't actually like have a felt experience of leaving one and going to the other. And so it makes sense to you that services would like bleed across those borders because, you know, the road is sort of like continuous in that way and has the same thing. That is my random arbitrary hypothesis based on nothing that I'm floating out into the world today for everyone to see. That's interesting. I I don't know if it's zoning, but I do think you're you're onto something with every town feels can feel really distinct. Um, and I I myself always attributed that to our town centers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I mean by zoning. That like there's the town center and then there's the uh, okay expanse between the town centers. Yeah, yeah I would, the plan, the planners would say we have a pattern of compact villages in downtown surrounded by rural 
that is what they would say. It's so unsexy when they say it that way. It really is, but um, but it's it's the truth. And it's if you think about the way that it shapes the way we live our lives mm-hmm. and where we travel to uh, on a daily basis, and where we shop and where we work, um, and also how disrupted it is by the um, remote work. I mean, one of the things that that occurred to me earlier in our conversation as we talked about the change in this legislature, when I first ran and won a seat in the 2012 election a decade ago, all we were talking about was declining student populations and how no one wanted to move to Vermont and we needed to get more taxpayers and all this stuff. That is a very different conversation right now in many parts of the state. Except for the governor, but yes, everyone else is having right. it. The governor, well, and that's so, that's he a real problem, job. right? The governor is, is kind of stuck in the whatever is 631 thing. It, like, that's not the world we're living in right now. We're living in a world where people from out of state are buying up housing and essentially making it impossible for people who would be the workforce here serving our communities to live here. In a lot of communities, we have a very high vacancy rate where people have bought properties, but there's no one living in that house that's there. So it's not even that we don't have enough housing. It's like, we don't have enough housing that's available for people to live in because there's all of the second home and short-term rental stuff that's been claimed by other people. Those are the highest rate in the country. So it's, there's a, there's a, I heard um, Dr. Finney who teaches at Middlebury and lives in Burlington. She taught it, or she spoke at the Vermont Development Coffee conference last week and she was talking about like who do you stand with she talked about convergence and land use and who's at the table and when i think about like who do who do we in the legislature stand with and it's like we stand with people who like work and live and want to raise their families and thrive here and maybe we need to ask more of people who are kind of like just wanting to experience vermont as a I don't know. Place to consume. As a yeah, place to consume. a place to consume. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have to ask those folks for more if they want to keep Vermont, Vermont, and they want to have people who can come and, you know, fix their plumbing or do their <laughs> electrical work or anything that they need. Because like the people just who work- to have even have Vermont feel like Vermont, where it's like friendly, thriving neighborhoods and communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree with you, Mike. I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that. <laughs> but i'm not really sure the conversation we're having full disclosure we don't always agree but i've tried to hit some points that i thought would resonate with representative kornheiser on this show. Oh, thanks mike you're also a very gracious person when interrupted you know i uh have been the whip the last two years and i think a lot of people think that means i have like the power to try to convince people to vote with the majority and all that but really what it is is a lot of just taking a beat and like letting people do their thing and talk and listening and trying to absorb the big caucus we have. And now it's even bigger. So I think we're going to do some powerful things in the next two years and we're going to have some really tough conversations. Yeah. Um, I, I love what you just said, Mike. And for me, it's, I think my biggest takeaway we've talked about, you know, setting resetting culture in the state house. We've talked about, you know, regional governance, we've, we've really spanned a lot of topics here, but I think what they all come down to for me is, you know, this idea of community, uh, whether it's a small town, whether it's a committee and, um, 
you know, what that means and how they operate and how do we care for them in a way so that as many people as possible can thrive and that they, they can build a momentum that is, um, not expansive in a, in a consumptive way, but expansive as in a regenerative way, uh, you know, so that's, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, head up. Oh, I was going to say that we care for, like, we create an environment where people can care for each other. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast. It might have been Ezra Klein where he was talking about how he hates the metaphor of expanding the pie as if, like, when we grow whatever it is, you know, our economy, the community, we build things, that it's all the same. Like, if you just grow the pie, that it, every that people are eating the same, more of the same thing. And that's really not what we're doing. Like when we, if we invest in a diverse, thriving, rich town, community, county government, if we're going to try to share more services and and do more at a regional or county level, I think that you'll see greater diversity in the, the kinds of ways we're using land and the kinds of ways we're conserving land and the kinds of people who live here. Um, and we're already seeing that and it's different in different parts of the state. and. Um, there's this big, complex, messy thing that we have to try to govern and figure out and make sure that people do have that opportunity to thrive. I love the way you said that, Olga, and making sure that most people have the opportunity to thrive. I mean, that's that's what gets me out of bed and having some of these tough conversations. And it was really nice to get reelected. <laughs> get to do it for another two years. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Unfortunately, we're out of time here on the happy hour. Mike, if people want to learn more about you or reach out to you, how can they do that? Um, all of my information is at I like Mike VT. I like Mike VT as in Vermont.com. And um, I'm at uh, Mike at I like Mike VT.com. Thank you. Emily, if people want to reach out to you. Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to all the ways to get in touch. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro every Friday at 2. You can also find us at our Captivate page, which is the themontpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm, or drop us an email at themontpelierhappyhour at gmail.com. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. Bye.